0: Hey there, you're listening to the Water & Music Podcast. My name is Sherry Hu, and I'm a freelance writer focused on how technology is transforming music and culture. In this podcast, we unpack the fine prints behind Big Ideas at the intersection of music and tech, featuring a curated slate of young innovators, leaders, artists, and thinkers from across the music business. The goal is to get you thinking differently about how the music business works, and maybe challenge your assumptions about where it might be going in the future. Today's guest is Alex Bonavia, who's the current head of business development at Waveo, a company based in Montreal that builds digital marketing, advertising and data analytics tools for artists, labels and other entertainment companies. We dive into a ton of different topics in this episode, all stemming from this notion that artists can now service their own de facto media properties and brands and that there's so much room for industry practices and organizational structures to improve and shift in service of this new paradigm, with the artist rather than the song at the center. We dig into trends like what it means to subscribe to an artist, why every music company with some kind of following wants to start a joint venture with a record label now, why creative directors for artists are more in demand than ever, and what the future of catalog marketing might look like in an era without song cycles. Without further ado, let's get right to it. I'm here with Alex Bonavia. Alex, thank you so much for joining.
1: No problem. It's, it's an honor. You're one of our favorite journalists here at Wevo, so it's great <laughs> to join and jump in and chat with you.
0: Thank you so much as well. There are so many things that I want to touch upon today, but they all stem from this concept that you've told me about earlier, thinking about the, the modern paradigm of music marketing and how it's moving away from just a cycle-based model, so just dependent on individual song cycles, and then as a result you said that artists now are becoming launching pads for songs rather than the other way around, of songs becoming launching pads for artists. I'd love to unpack that idea a little bit more. And I'm wondering if there's anything happening in music that comes to mind for you that made you realize that there's this paradigm shift or maybe with your own work at Weibo as well. Like what inspired you to think about that specific shift?
1: At Weibo, we've tried to move our advertising strategy with the majors to like more of an always-on uh, type strategy where we're always working some sort of piece of content from an artist. And what we started to see is I think back um, you know maybe five, ten years, you really needed a hit song to become established as an artist, whereas now you're seeing that an artist can become very big without actually having like a hit record, and especially a record that is like reached mainstream radio as it follows, you know now artists are becoming bigger brands and just looking like kind of media properties that can launch a number of different product lines. So we're encouraging our label partners to kind of you know, take advantage of that and build up an artist, even if they don't have music content coming this quarter. We're always looking to kind of advertise a piece of press about them, some sort of viral content, just something that's always kind of competing for mindshare and attention, especially in today's age, where we think that because video games are on demand, videos on demand, podcasts are on demand, instead of paper use, we're always kind of competing for not only against other artists or musicians for kind of attention but different content types. So the marketing kind of has to be always on and always kind of pulsing versus a big spike and then, you know, going quiet for a bit.
0: Yeah, I think there are different implications for the individual independent more DIY artist who's just starting out versus on on the label level. Just starting out, I feel like a lot of them think that Their first song is the only thing they have going for them. Then their approach to marketing or building an audience is, hey, I have this song and the song is going to break me, I guess, as an artist or as a larger brand. Hey, anyone who happens to come across, you know, so-and-so social media post, go stream my song and then I'll use that as, I guess, a launching pad for, for the larger brand. Given this new shift, would you advise differently for an artist today in terms of how they market themselves from the very beginning, given that? It's more about building, you know, larger brands definitely. and media properties. Yeah,
1: definitely. So one thing, you know, I'm talking to when I'm talking to developing artists and when we're speaking about an artist that's just been signed, we're always advising, like, never release your first song until you have your second and third sorted, right? Mm-hmm. So because mm-hmm. what we started to see a lot more of, and I think this approach was kind of pioneered by um, uh, en- Ennis and Adam, who managed the Chainsmokers, but they were just putting out a song a month like, without stopping. And making sure that there's like there was massive, massive momentum. The fans were getting something new every month. There was content coming around against all those songs. But they didn't stop. Even if one kind of started really picking up, they released, you know, Don't Let Me Down and they released closer, like not too long after. So they had they were kind of the first ones to release multiple songs and like get multiple songs started at radio before the other ones had kind of stopped like, you know, stopped. And now you're seeing that strategy be embraced all the time. So we saw the Jonas brothers release their first song. Uh, sucker. And usually like they would, you would max that song out at radio and wait for it to kind of tail off before launching a second single, but a month later, or I think it might have even been three weeks later, they launched a the second single in the campaign and they've already impacted that at radio as well. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that now the marketplace can actually bear multiple songs from the same artist. Radio's asking for more songs from the same artist. I think Ariana might have had almost three or four songs at top 40, and people were still asking for more. So I think a lot of the biggest, you know, biggest things are about momentum, having like a consistent output and making sure that you have content that surrounds all those outputs and making sure that you're that's a big focus for you as well. I'm seeing a big rise in the demand for creative directors. I think that's mm. one of the biggest things mm-hmm. that all artists are adding to their team, Re- you know, recently is just someone who's just in charge of video, photo and like all content that's not music coming out on an ongoing basis. And that's been something that's very, very, you know, a huge kind of trend that we're seeing in the industry and very, very important to most artists' careers.
0: I have heard mixed reactions to this new paradigm and that I feel like Instagram alone has had a huge influence on the shift and that a lot of artists feel like because of this new landscape, they have to essentially operate on the influencer model and like the influencer value system and they have to become influencers into themselves and think of them not just as recording artists but as I guess personalities or brands that can influence fans or audiences in different ways and I say mixed reactions in that yes some people think this takes value away from the recorded music side of things and then looks more like the audience is valued more than anything and influencers are paid by brands essentially just for, yeah, just for existing and for having access to that audience rather than having that be tied to the the actual copyright, if that makes sense.
1: Definitely. I mean, there's, it's definitely a double-edged sword in the fact that you have to build an audience and you have to be competing against, you know, other people's growing their audience at the same time as you, but growing an audience, you know, you can do it in your own way with your own unique voice. Um, but I think it's very, very important to be always engaging and connecting with fans now that you're you have access to those tools and like the bigger your audience is, the more opportunities you're going to get. Right. I think like one great example is someone like Marshmello, who's a great producer, but the, he's able to get access to all these songs and collaborations and artists because of the pl- massive platform that he's built for himself. Mm, People mm-hmm. want access into kind of like his social media. They want access to his brand. So being able to do a song with him, getting access to all the features in the song and the songwriter kind of collaborations that he's been able to get to is because of his, of, of his audience and his platform. Whereas an artist who's just as good of a producer without a brand and without a following isn't going to get that same access, especially if they're not signed to a major label.
0: Speaking of that and then shifting from like the DIY artist level, just starting out to the major label level, something that we talked about previously, but I think is relevant to this conversation as well, is that marketing departments at labels are still structured to serve the song first and foremost, I think, and not so much the artist. Or like, if you look at how marketing budgets are allocated and how, yeah, I guess just how energy is distributed across all the different channels where music can be marketed and and monetized, so much budget is still being allocated to radio. And I think a lot of the mindset is still on generating hits rather than long-term artists brands and in a lot of interviews or yeah like in in conversations you hear more and more people bring up the term career artist right Uh, like oh we, we want to build career artists like artists who will survive for the long term and I think like people are paying lip service to that but just like the way that labels operate internally or even like the way that they're organized just fundamentally there's there's a limitation as to how much they can actually execute on that
1: definitely I think like Hits are very important and, and they always will be important, but they used to be a lot more important in that, you know, this is like the first time in history where you can kind of subscribe to an artist and get an mm-hmm. ongoing, you know, flow of their content, whether it's music or whether it's their touring, whether it's their merchandise, whether it's a brand partnership or a perfume line. Once you subscribe to an artist, that's an extremely valuable action that you've taken for them. So, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, the different artists that we're working and we have the option between you know pushing someone down the funnel towards a single Spotify stream or pushing to someone down the funnel towards a follow on Instagram even though that stream on Spotify may be you know the most valuable thing in the, in this quarter because we're trying to break this on at radio long term a subscription to an artist I think is going to be the most valuable thing and what if labels are you know in partnered with an artist for the long term something that should be they should be always aiming for I think it used to be that like week one sales mattered the most because that was the, by far the biggest kind of impact in terms of actual revenue that the label was going to see. Mm. And week one kind of determined almost, you know, the, the amount of total sales that you were going to see on a record. But now we're seeing that like week four or week six or week eight is actually much more important to determining actually the lifetime value of a record. You know, artists who have an engaged audience and who have all those subscriptions and who can on a consistent basis send out records to that those subscribers... Um, and they're consuming them consistently over a long period of time those are like the projects that are making a lot more money long term another an interesting paradigm i would probably compare it to and when i talk to my friends at spotify for example the number one concern of everyone is usually getting on new music friday right yeah like uh-huh. it's the number one thing it's the it's the number one thing that everyone's kind of gunning for but when you talk to them they're like you know new music friday is one thing but you're on there for seven days a much more valuable ad is something like an ad to singing in the car or mood booster or one of those mood playlists where you're in there for 30 to 45 days if not more you get a, a, a significant amount of more streams and listeners coming from those playlists than you do New music friday so it's kind of the same paradigm we're looking for things that we can invest in long term versus um and, and finding content and you know, we're trying to t- tailor our advertising strategy to investing more in the artist brand and, you know, maybe putting money behind mute content that's not strictly music and investing in artists in quarters where they don't have releases when they're supposed to be off cycle. So that when it does come around to the next type, next time they have music, it's that much easier to break them. They have that much more of an engaged audience and it's that much easier to move the needle.
0: A bunch of thoughts are coming up, as you were saying, all of that. So yeah, first off, it's interesting to see the extent to which the subscription mindset can or cannot go into a label setting. Because yeah, I, I think it's such a good point that like, now fans can subscribe to an artist, and, and there's so much that you can do around that. And in a way, like now labels, in a sense, need to think about their key artists on their, on their roster or key brands as subscription products, and not just as personalities and like and then now they need to think about issues that companies like Spotify are thinking about on a daily basis. Like the concept of churn, I think was never really relevant to the label world. Like while we think about user churn, it's just all about you know buying a record or you know streaming a song. Like that's that's what gets us money. That's great. But now that you have these streaming subscription services uh, generating so much revenue for for labels and for artists across the board The metrics that matter to those services now have to matter to artists and labels as well, I think, and how they deal with their own audiences. And they need to think of themselves as, yeah, as subscription products. And you even see this trend in the realm of production software and DAWs. So like Native Instruments and Ableton and newer companies like Splice that have been coming up with over the past few years, like they traditionally ran on, yeah, just like a one-off transaction model. Or like if you wanted to update your software, very often you had to like buy an entirely new version of it. So it wasn't super cost effective, but it's interesting to see how like even they are shifting now to a subscription model and like a, soft, like a SaaS model as opposed to just buying one off software. So the subscription mindset is permeating all elements of the music industry where maybe it traditionally wasn't as relevant or maybe not as needed.
1: Definitely. I think like consumer behavior as a whole and across like almost all types of content, we've now been conditioned to getting access to almost everything for a low monthly price. So, you know, that shift has happened. The marketing and finance departments are still kind of tied to putting money against, you know, when, it, when, an, artist has a record, when an artist has a record coming out that quarter, there's going to be a bigger budget allocated to that artist. Or, you know, and sometimes if an artist doesn't have something coming out that quarter, there's no budget allocated at all. So we're trying to, you know, encourage our, our clients and, you know, a lot of the digital departments and the marketing departments are on the same page, but it's, you know, we're we're trying to kind of like put together the right models to show that investment during an off cycle kind of month for releases um, results in higher revenue long term for the repertoire owner.
0: So related to this notion of artists as brands and media properties in their own right, you had tweeted something back in March that I thought was really interesting about how you notice that JVs or joint ventures are more popular than ever now, such that you know, like any part of the music ecosystem that has some kind of consumer-facing brand or cachet will actually want to start buying out or owning some kind of copyright and building out a label roster in their own right. And that trend is so interesting to me because, well, I feel like it is very much tied to the state of the music industry. Like, I feel like five, 10 years ago when revenue was still at least in aggregate decline in recorded music, there was a lot more skepticism, I think, about people starting a label. Uh, Like I think people weren't as bullish about it, but yeah, now you have like hospitality brands, like hotels Mm -hmm. going to the label space. Mm -hmm. You have um, a ton of management companies now want to start labels in-house, another interesting trend. And there's just so much more activity around that space. I'm curious as to why you personally think that trend is coming up now in terms of everyone wanting to pursue JVs and then also what that means for the incumbent major label infrastructure and how that might change.
1: For sure. So I think, you know, the the big driver of that trend was music production costs come down. Distribution becomes basically normalized. So it's very easy to get your song across. uh, Spotify, Apple Music, where the vast, vast majority of the audience is, where you used to have to have a network of trucks. Now you need to have basically a TuneCore account. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There needs to be much less financing and kind of investment involved in owning and marketing copyrights. The thing that really starts to matter, especially when kind of getting an artist maybe to like zero to 60 is like a brand or a platform to work off of. And then a relationship or like, you know, something, a, a direct relationship to DSPs. Mm. Those I think are the very, like the most important parts uh, to get kind of like an artist started. So In certain genres, like electronic, for example, you're sometimes better off signing to an imprint that belongs to like a big artist in the genre or a huge tastemaker. So you see guys like Odessa starting their own labels, Mm -hmm. a big tastemaker like Majestic Casual has seen some pretty big success. Um, They offer like really, you know, direct owned platforms to elevate you whether Odessa takes you on tour with them or whether Majestic Casual guarantees you placements in their Spotify playlists, and YouTube channels. This can be sometimes a lot better of a choice for an artist who wants to develop and tour rather than kind of be a non-priority artist when they sign super early. Mm. Um, and the major labels are kind of waiting until those artists get to 60 anyways to sign them. So a great example here is when you look at someone like Rufus Dessal, who signed an album to Odessa's Imprint, toured extensively with them, and when they were kind of ready for the next phase of their career when they had been you know, selling out 3,000 cap rooms, they did a longer deal with Warner Bros that now has like a radio team to support them. And the deal was much more favorable to Rufus than if they had signed earlier on in their career. I believe that kind of anyone with a niche, so like a niche connection to a certain genre, a brand or expertise could in fact kind of start releasing music and have a net positive result for artists as, you know, and themselves because they're now building assets that are, you know, earning when they sleep instead of, Having to be out on the road all the time, or managers who only have basically one or two artists, or one you know one to five artists that could you know terminate that relationship at any point, and then you're kind of left starting from zero again.
0: Yeah, definitely. And one higher level topic that I've been thinking a lot about, just personally, is how the A and R process is changing, especially the role that artists themselves play in the A and R process for developing other artists. And it seems like with this trend. Artists are increasingly at the steering wheel in terms of cultivating the success of their peers or maybe their successors, especially in the case of someone like Odessa. And then, yeah, having that bubble up uh, such that they have more leverage, yeah, in in the case of a major label deal in a way that benefits everyone involved. So, yeah, hopefully that trend will grow more in the future in terms of artists creating their own labels. I guess first just to serve themselves, like to, to release their own records, but then starting, starting to Definitely. build a community around I think that. I it's, yeah.
1: it's going to be great for both sides, right? Like you're creating, we're going to be creating kind of a space for boutique labels and ownership because the cost to get into the space are almost zero now. You, all you need is a nominal kind of investment in marketing. Um, there's no distribution or even A&R costs anymore. And sometimes these big artists are the best A&Rs for a certain project the majors aren't really minding because they get to just upstream the records when, you know, the time comes when an artist is kind of ready to graduate to the next level. And then the artists who kind of invested early in that, the bigger artists who invested early in that project then get to reap the rewards as, you know, if Rufus went on to be very successful with their second album, but their first album that is owned by kind of Odez's imprint is generating revenue, more and more revenue for them. So I think it's a kind of a win-win for everyone in the space. And the major labels are smart. They're already doing kind of joint venture kind of operations where they'll invest some money in staffing and then they get first right of refusal on upstreaming anything from that mm-hmm. label. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes they'll even be like full kind of partners where they own you know a percentage of the masters. But a lot of the deals are just first looks. So you know, they just want first right of refusal if they see something really pop up that needs additional resources like big marketing funds, global team, or radio. Um, they're able to just go and do that deal first before having without having to compete or get into a bidding war.
0: Also thinking about brands beyond music, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on brands like the W Hotels franchise. Like They've been releasing a bunch of singles with artists like Perfume Genius. Red Bull has been investing in independent underground artists for a really long time and they're kind of like retooling their music strategy and they're shutting down the official music academy. That's been a lot of the driving force behind it, but they're also far from the only beverage brand that I think is trying to invest in artists and fund artists' careers or album recording processes, etc. cetera. I'm curious as to your stance on what value they provide in this ecosystem versus seeking funding or support from a more traditional label or other resource.
1: So I think, you know, any brand with like a platform and something to offer artists can add value to the space. The W hotels, I'm not sure I'm like what their program looks like for releasing music with them, but if they're putting up money for marketing, if they have, you know, if you can tour a bunch of W hotels or if they offer artists credits to stay in their hotels when they tour, that could be something that's interesting. Mm-hmm. They, they definitely have a global platform and it's pretty widely respected. In terms of Red Bull Music Academy, I think that was kind of the pinnacle of brand music partnership where it was, True collaboration. The artists benefited a lot. Red Bull looked great. I'm not sure why they shut down, but that was a, such a massive value add on both ends. Everyone looked at it, you know, it's like the polar opposite of the KFC Ultra thing. Right, where right. it was like a natural yeah. <laughs> fit for both brands. Um, you know, the artists really got value out of it. The fans loved the content. And then, you know, the brand had such a good halo effect from, you know, doing this and participating in the community and such an engaging authentic way Mm. um so that's kind of like you know for me in terms of music and like big brand partnerships that was like the pinnacle of well done and you know but like you know I remember Mountain Dew used to have a label you know right Mm -hmm. it's kind of it's getting a bit harder to sign to like guys like that who like don't have a cool brand because it kind of I think it would end up kind of looking a bit you know weird for the artist fan base but if there's brands that are cool um like I think I is I don't know I'm not sure if Kitsune started as a coffee shop or if it started as an actual label.
0: I think it started yeah it's like a coffee shop and a fashion brand all in one like in addition to a label. Yeah, I think they definitely grew in parallel. Yeah.
1: Right, like they they kind of did a good job of like is a cool place to sign even though yeah. it's like mm-hmm. a brand at the end of the day, that would be a cool place if Soho House started to release music. Oh, I could gosh. see that being that could be super like Cool and valuable if like artists got free memberships and got to play a tour of the different Soho houses.
0: That's so true. Yeah,
1: it really depends on like the brand that's coming into the space. Do they have a platform to offer the artist something? Is there something that you know valuable that they can offer to artists at a certain stage of their career? That makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. for a bigger artist, it's very easy for them to put the the artist they've signed on a support tour and develop them that way. For a bigger hotel or a Soho house style brand playing those venues can like look super cool and like saving on accommodations or you know just being associated with a cool brand like that can really kind of have a good effect on your career as well. And again like I mean like obviously those deals aren't going to be long term or really kind of like they're not going to be like intrusive or prohibitive to doing anything else so I don't see a big problem with it in terms of like what the brand gets back. Obviously I don't think they're looking to make money on their life on those copyrights they they probably don't have like a big kind of label style team set up Mm -hmm. or even an aggressive like a and r team it's kind of just probably for them to get involved with music uh i think w hotels it's a big part of their brand so it makes sense that they kind of you know are starting to release some music but that's just like i think marketing for them rather than like them actually looking to make a return on the copyrights that they own whereas uh you know artist imprints and jvs are actively looking to make money on the copyrights they've signed or the partnerships that they've done mm-hmm. so they'll be much more incentivized to work the record properly they'll be much more incentivized to develop relationships with spotify and apple music to get you playlisted they'll have the right kind of content creators to like reach out to when the time comes for you your release so i mean i would always look at kind of like what the offering is i'm not going to go sign a record to taco bell for a free tacos right. but <laughs> I would, you know, something like the Soho House or something like, you know, another kind of brand that's really involved naturally in the music space would be interesting, I think.
0: I think one thing that might also be helpful for people listening, just in case you don't know, is the difference between a JV and an imprint. And like in in which situation an artist might want to do one versus the other. Would you be able to quickly differentiate between the two?
1: Yeah, so I guess... An imprint can be multiple different things, but I think typically you would refer to an imprint as something like fully owned as part of the as part of like a bigger label conglomerate and just like its own brand. So if Sony's mm-hmm. the conglomerate, RCA is an imprint, Arista is an imprint, Columbia is an imprint. Right. Um, mm-hmm. A JV is something that's typically fifty percent or less owned by the major label that's partnered with an outside uh, partner outside of the label. So a lot of the you'll see a lot of management companies doing it. I've seen a lot of hip-hop producers doing it. And basically, instead of signing over your masters to the major label, they'll help you set up your own label where either they own a percentage of your masters, but you probably retain ownership of the copyright, or they just have first right of refusal. And they'll help fund your label, um, and you basically have much more control over the copyrights at the end of the day. So Metro Boomin has a JV. Um, You know, I just saw logics managers do the, the visionary team do a JV with sony kaigo's manager and this is actually a genius move so one thing i see all the time that like i advise artist managers to like you know really work on their own brand but sometimes if you fly too close to the sun the artist can get mad and think that they're not you're not focusing on their career as much mm. so what i think miles did was who manages kaigo is he partnered with his artist on a new company and which is the JV with Sony. So they're both equal partners in the company. Or I'm not sure what the actual partnership split is, but they're both involved in the business as a whole. So they've gone into business together. It's a joint venture with Sony. A Sony imprint like RCA will work a record from that JV, but at the end of the day, Kaigo and his manager, Miles, will retain ownership on all the copyrights Mm. and probably the decision-making at the end of the day. All the deals kind of like points, you know, defer, But sometimes you'll have the ability to say, no, I don't want to upstream this record, or sometimes every record will automatically go through a certain label.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Just to go back as well to thinking about moving past the shorter song cycles and thinking about that cycle stretching and building up brands in the long term, I'm curious as to your thoughts on the current state of catalog marketing, especially within the major labels and how, if at all, that can improve. First and foremost, there's a lot of debate over what the term catalog even means and whether its current definition, which is somewhat arbitrary, I think it's like any song that's 18 months or older. Um, there's some mm-hmm. debate about whether that's really relevant anymore, especially in a streaming world where the duration of a song's like relevance or the extent to which it can be revived or consumed over time is just made so much longer to the point of being almost infinite, as opposed to, you know, just relying on first week sales or being temporarily on a shelf in a brick and mortar record store. So yeah, I'm just wondering, like, have you done any work on catalog marketing from an advertising perspective? I'd be really curious to hear more about like how that works. And if there if there's any room that you see for new types of campaigns to be done, or, or advertising in that sense?
1: Definitely, definitely. So yeah, like, I think me and you discussed this um, earlier, but for the first time in history the quality of the record actually determines its long-term value. So it used to be that you, buy, you you pay up front for a record and if you listen to it twice and you never listen to it again you've paid the same amount. Now we're in a world where if you listen to this song consistently 10,000 times over the course of, you know, 3 to 5 years, it's worth much more than a dollar. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we're in this, you know, the real start of that realization and I think there's always been catalog marketing, there's always been legacy marketing. But as streaming has really come online and there's been, you know, different types of different styles of playlists, different voice, you know, like the speakers in the home, how Mm -hmm. how is it, you know, if you ask Amazon Alexa how to to play 70s music from the 70s, how those songs are selected, you know, there's so many new shifts coming into the catalog world It's going to be very, very interesting in, you know, in the coming months. And I think one of the other interesting things that we find about catalog marketing as well is you have a very good baseline for how much money your catalog is generating. So you feel much more comfortable making investments against it on the advertising and marketing. Mm,
0: front. Interesting. Whereas
1: when you're trying to break an artist, it's always basically a gamble, right? Because I don't know what the, if the stats still holds true, but something like 19 out of 20 artists never recoup, you know, with catalog, you basically know how much money you're making on an ongoing basis and you can feel much more comfortable allocating capital against those kind of funds. So with catalog marketing, well, what I'm seeing is there's definitely like always been legacy kind of setups. And like a lot of the times it's almost a different imprint, right? So yeah, uh-huh. Atlantic and WBR, their their legacy stuff falls under Rhino. Sony has Sony legacy. But what we're starting to see is people are getting hired at all the major labels to look at very recent catalog. So I have clients that look after the Smoker songs from 18 months ago. So they're looking at trying to re-energize Roses, Trying to re energize Don't Let Me Down, Mm -hmm. whereas their counterparts at Columbia on the front line are trying to energize the new song with Five Seconds of Summer. So, in terms of advertising, we do a lot of like legacy stuff in terms of like anniversaries, box sets, you know, the typical kind of repackaged copyrights and get them out into a new way where fans can consume and enjoy. There's like a big rush, I feel, to build up owned playlists where you can kind of like, you know, Sony Legacy or Warner would both be trying to build up like a classic hip hop playlist that becomes Mm -hmm. kind of the authority on that, on that matter. And then they're trying to build those up to be like really well indexed and have a lot of good metadata so that when someone calls up classic hip hop on voice, that's what comes up. A lot of our advertising in legacy revolves around kind of D to C. So if there's a new box set or something like that, we'll look for like the most engaged fans and be able to serve them direct kind of purchases. So that's been, and like, we see that uh, physical consumption is still very, very big on the legacy side. It's definitely new days on the recent catalog side. Um, there's a lot of best practices we, we try and encourage, right? So instead of sending someone to just a single on Spotify, we'll try and send someone to the This Is Anderson pack playlist, for example. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: That contains their
1: entire catalog. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's definitely now we're trying to make it just like an absolute best practice that you always send to like, a bigger playlist of the artist's music with the target song listed first, because um, that just increases catalog consumption, and you can like double or triple uh, your return on investment if the you know if the person streams two to three songs.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the whole like this is series of playlists on Spotify because I don't know if it's a tension, but I feel like with the marketing approach that Spotify and Apple Music and a lot of other streaming services take, they're always about discovery and most often of new music, I feel. Yeah, like, whether through New Music Friday or the release radar that's personalized for every user, my impression is that it's, uh, like, what's promoted on the homepage is very often, like, focusing on relatively newer music, whereas labels are making... majority of their money from catalog, not from your songs that are released. This is playlist series is maybe an example of, I guess, mitigating that tension or like bringing in more of that catalog that generates the majority of revenue for labels like at the forefront. That's always like a tension that came to mind for me. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but like between the more discovery oriented, new music oriented mindset that streaming services are trying to promote with what ultimately generates the majority of money for for labels and rights holders at the end of the day
1: it's definitely an interesting question i've never really thought about it but you know what percentage of the homepage is dedicated to frontline versus versus catalog and then out of spotify's biggest playlists that are maybe not like new music playlists what percentage of songs have been released in the last five years like those are interesting Mm -hmm. questions where it's um and i would be interested to look at my homepage versus my dad's homepage on Spotify who has completely different listening right, habits uh-huh. than me, right? Um, like I'm looking at my homepage right now and I have, it's all about heading home, commute happy. And I have a happy drive option, which looks like new music. And then I have a classic rock drive. So they're they are actively promoting some catalog. And like, I do listen to some kind of like, older records and a lot of catalogs so maybe they're suggesting that to me but it's really interesting to see like how much of it is algorithmically tailored to your consumption patterns Mm. and like how it would differ for different fan segments like i consume a lot of new music just because we're in the industry i'm always looking for who's been placed where what's new who are we working right now um so you know i also did um and it's funny, like it's funny the way the algorithms could work because based on your listening habits, right? So I'm sure you saw the everyone posting their Spotify festivals. Yeah, uh huh. Right. So mine was mine was super embarrassing because <laughs> I listen to I listen to Spotify the vast majority of my my time listening to Spotify is at the gym.
0: Okay, so my headliners okay.
1: were like Skrillex and Linkin Park. So everyone was kind of making fun of me, whereas <laughs> like those aren't the artists I actually listen to the most, but they're the ones I listen to most frequently because I have like a gym playlist. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, maybe like the spot you know, it's, it's interesting to see like how Spotify will read your listening habits and serve you recommendations based on, you know, whether you're a heavy kind of like fitness listener or whether you're always listening in the car ride home or whether you're listening when you're at work and you just only listen to ambient music, for example. There's a lot of interesting things, you know, interesting nuances that I'm sure they're kind of always trying to figure out.
0: Yeah, totally. And you would like very briefly mentioned smart speakers, but the intersection between these mood and activity based and more functional playlists and personalizing that and maybe how that can help surface more catalog. Like, yeah, I think fitness playlists are a perfect example, or I'd written about these cycling companies like Peloton or SoulCycle or I've like done some classes at Flywheel that have like 70s rides or 80s rides like I think that's definitely a growing sector in the catalog world for
1: sure. 100% and I think like one of the most interesting articles you ever wrote was just like the the niche hit or you know like our, our yeah the- uh-huh. You know, like our hits becoming more and more niche, and like are there, you know, the mass appeal of artists are they kind of are they are they kind of done? And um, so you wrote a great piece on that. And another piece that I read recently that was really really great was Mark Mulligan's take on how A. Wall might be becoming one of you know the fourth major label or the fourth conglomerate because mm. instead mm. of putting their artists on a massive pedestal and carpet bombing TV, radio, and and like you know putting basically forced kind of reach and impressions, you know, for the artist. AWOL and, um, you know, the digital team over there led by Aaron has done a great job. of just creating, identifying a a fan segment that the artist is going to really appeal to and then making them superstars of that niche specifically. So your marketing becomes much cheaper and you're laser focused on one segment. And if that segment really catches on and you become the biggest thing for that segment, like, you know, Love became the biggest, um, artist for the Spotify core generation
0: for sure that mm-hmm. could be something that's
1: very very valuable and you don't have to have access to TV or radio or Jimmy Fallon anymore um, because you have just like that owned and segmented audience and you're you know serving them different pieces of content every single day
0: mm. yeah that actually segues very well into the last question I wanted to ask before going on to the last segment but just generally the role that Data analytics plays in this new landscape, like on the individual artist level. So yet yeah, given that you can have, you know, a hit within a specific niche in a way that's really valuable. Or given that now as an artist, it's not so much about each individual song as it is about building out a larger brand and owning an audience in that sense. Um, I'd yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role that data analytics plays under that paradigm, as opposed to just focusing on like streaming metrics or, or social metrics, both, both of which are like really important, but maybe like, yeah, how the roles of those metrics changes in this context.
1: So definitely, I think, you know, data analytics and data science and big data are going to be huge, huge kind of projects for the music industry to take on in the coming you know years as we try and get more and more data on how we should market. I think there's a lot of tools in the marketplace right now that are focused more on, you know, AR or finding the next artist. But yeah. not a lot of tools that are telling us how to smartly allocate our capital to generate the biggest return for our artists. Mm. Um, and like you know, the biggest reason why data science problems always fail is because they're not actually addressing the true business problem and usually because mm. they're not sitting close enough to the business units. Um, you know wave was working on a big data platform and the interesting thing that what we're doing is we're creating this platform for ourselves not for someone else to use so we're using it to answer the, the questions that we're getting from our clients all the time for us internally before rolling it out to you know the wider audience so we're trying to answer questions like when an artist goes up for a 50-50 against Uh, for a certain festival slot and a certain festival slot you know if it's a sunset slot at Coachella can make or break an artist's career and you can accelerate so much harder off of you know the momentum around that and so agents are often going in with very like aggregate data where it's just like the total number of followers yeah or uh ticket sales from last year and often there's an agent on the other side of the coin with a similar artist so what we're trying to do is arm you know our clients with specific market specific data that's has trends over time that has projected trends in six months um can show rates of acceleration rates of growth and really give people like more and more specific information so that you can kind of do the best job for your artist so because there's different 50 50s that happen every day whether an an a and r is competing for a song and on the other side of the coin there's an artist who's just as big as you or who's bigger right now and you need to present an argument that your artist should get that song that they can record Mm -hmm. um you know, so I think, you know, analytics is just like, even though there's a, a lot of products like Chartmetric, like Soda Tone, you know, there's, you know, people out in the marketplace who have kind of aggregated a lot of like streaming and social data. We've kind of left the end user to like answer the questions themselves. Whereas we want to be able to create a massive repository of data that then initially we are going to like answer questions with ourselves. So We'll be doing studies and presenting our clients with charts, but in the at the end, the end product is going to be the artist or client has the ability to query the system itself and ask it almost like a Bloomberg terminal, pop mm, up different mm-hmm, screens, mm-hmm. trends, comparisons. Um, and the other the other interesting thing about um, our platform is we have the ability to connect public and private data. So we're watching the Spotify charts and that's being measured, but if an artist wants to plug in their bank account, if an artist wants to plug in their back end to their touring system, their touring kind of like application that their talent agency gives them, you can then start to see how investments on your side impact the public facing metrics like your Spotify charting position Mm -hmm. and then flow back into your private data, which would be the revenue you're receiving from Spotify. So the platform we're building very robust, it's going to be very flexible so it could handle like, Hundreds of thousands of different types of data, you know, structured, unstructured, public and private and avoid commingling the two. So I think, you know, it's very early days and there's a lot of people doing interesting things. And, you know, at the end of the day, like the, the real win is when we're going to be able to make informed marketing decisions or informed investment decisions based on, you know, queryable big data. And that's what every other industry kind of like, you know, consumer packaged goods retail has right now. So... As we see that come into the music industry, you know, budgets are going to become much and much bigger because you're sure of what the impact is happening on your artists. You know, we want to do things like show a certain uh, group of fans, uh, you know, an advertisement, measure the you know the brand lift versus a control group who didn't see that. Um, there's lots of different tests that we you know we want to bring into the music industry that are in other industries that just haven't arrived yet because there hasn't been kind of the financial wherewithal to kind of, you know, bring the right data scientist to the table.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love all of that. And the example that you gave about the agents having like facing kind of a 50-50 dilemma for a slot at a festival is especially interesting because I feel like that's an ongoing challenge that I still hear about all the time in terms of converting streaming metrics to metrics about who is going to show up and actually buy a ticket to your show. Or who essentially like, show up in the audience at your at your festival slot? Yeah, I can definitely imagine artists whether they're on tour or at a festival where they have really impressive streaming numbers, but that doesn't convert to in person audiences. And I'm wondering if that's a challenge that you faced at all, or that you've, or that people have like come to you with in, in the context of Waveo and how you might navigate that. Like if if you're in a situation where you have to convince someone that you know you are the right artist to take the slot.
1: Right. I mean, we see um, we see phantom streams all the time, right? Like someone who has 100 million streams being able not being able to sell 20 tickets in a market, right? And a band who has like 100,000 monthly active listeners crushing an arena. Yeah.
0: Um, uh-huh.
1: What we try and do, and what we're going to try and present our clients with, is a balanced scorecard, right? Um, where a lot of it focuses not just on like aggregate monthly active listeners or aggregate streams. But growth rates, velocity, how quickly am I growing in a market? And what's my projection yeah. for a trend over the next six months? Mm-hmm. Anomaly detection. So what's happening in this market that's different than this market? Why am I, why am I like growing so much in Boston, but you know, New York's not experiencing the same spike? So being able to get very, very specific and then separate out listens coming from playlists and listens coming from profile. Because I think if that's obviously the biggest distinction you have to make, is lean back versus kind of lean forward active listening. Mm -hmm. someone who listens to your song on songs to sing in the shower probably is a lot less likely to buy a ticket to see you than someone who's going and clicking to your profile visiting it streaming a couple songs and adding to playlist Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really you know important and spotify is doing you know on an ongoing basis doing a much much better job of releasing that important information to the industry whereas like we know we need to know what our listener habits actually are we need to know how deep the interaction actually is so that we can actually make an accurate kind of projection on which venue the artist should play or how many venue, how many nights can he play at this venue so and they've done a great job and we interface with spotify's ad advertising and data team on an ongoing basis to relay the kind of metrics that we need back from them and they've mm-hmm. uh, they've been slowly you know opening up the kimono and kind of really, you know, telling us what we need to know. So they've been amazing partners. And I think, you know, they've done so much for the industry and continue and will continue to do so. But um, there's lots of interesting questions we need to answer, right? So how many monthly active listeners you have in a certain city? You know, knowing the difference between engaged versus lean back listeners in that city determines how I should route a tour. Should I do three nights at the shrine? Or should I do two staple centers? Or should right. I like yeah. skip LA altogether and do... Three three nights in San Francisco. Like there's all these kind of models that we can build, you know, based on like taking into account like gas costs and ticket prices, the market can bear that, you know, the more data that we have to plug into those models and the more high quality data that we have, the better they're going to be. And the more money we're going to generate for the artists in the long run.
0: Yeah, for sure. that's all really great. Thank you. So now for the last 10 minutes or so, bringing up recent music industry news that we think is, over and or underrated or just interesting in general i'd love for you to go first if you have anything in mind
1: so the one thing i saw today was sylvia roan getting up to ceo of epic which mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. my opinion is underrated because it's such a monumental moment for women women of color you know to be the first uh chief executive of a major label is an incredible achievement and Just such a forward thinking move by Sony and Rob Stringer and, you know, inspiring to everyone else out there in the industry who's like, you know, looking for that like representation at the highest, highest level.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there were uh, several articles in Billboard over the last year questioning the relative lack of diversity at the executive level for hip hop and R&B and other genres as well in terms of representation of people of color. And, yeah, it's been really interesting to see that shift uh, for people of color specifically, but also for just for women in the music industry. And I think the whole Me Too movement starting in Hollywood and also now percolating in the music industry as well, slowly but surely, I think it's really like woken people up and for the better, for sure, has accelerated the rate at which women are being promoted at these companies. So, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that continue in the future.
1: Absolutely, and she's so deserving, you know, breaking Travis Scott, DJ Khaled, 21 Savage, and Camilla Camilla Cabello. She's done an amazing job this year of really taking that label, who, you know, looked a bit lost after L.A. Reid exited so so quickly. Um, She's done an amazing job of kind of just providing that leadership and stepping into the fray and, you know, just taking everything up to the next level and she's you know finally been elevated to that rightful position of chief executive so amazing to see and you know definitely a forward-thinking move by like the sony the sony team
0: yeah yeah definitely the piece of news that i had in mind is kind of a conglomeration of events so and they all revolve around beyonce so one she has a multi-million dollar partnership with netflix And the first installment of that was her homecoming documentary, which I watched last weekend. I just had to like set aside quite a few hours. It's like over two hours worth of footage to to watch that. And then also she had like a live album that dropped uh, the same night. And also her previous project Lemonade, which was formerly a title exclusive, is now available across streaming platforms, including Spotify and Apple Music. As to whether it's overrated or underrated, I think all of it is just super fascinating. And as someone who has not been to Coachella yet, actually, so seeing, I think it was just so engrossing to watch the documentary Homecoming and to see what I think not a lot of people in the audience at Coachella at the time got to see, which is... Even like her dancing and performing on stage, like right in front of her, like the vast majority of people were probably watching tens, if not hundreds, of rows back in the audience. So, just getting to see that experience up front and also to see how hard she worked. And she's, this isn't the first time that she did this, but just to think that she started preparing for Coachella right after having twins. And in the documentary, it said that she was rehearsing and working out every day and changing her diet such that she was losing like fifteen hundred calories a day, like which is like a full day's diet for some people. And so part of me is like a little was a little worried when I when I when I heard that. Like wow, yeah. it's like such a like you're really putting your body through so much like over that eight month period. But and also the fact that it took eight months to rehearse, like four months for the band versus four months for the dancers. And so it was just like a huge body of work that uh set the standard for Coachella headliners such that this year, just like hearing reactions from people, there's definitely a lot of positive reactions, but aside from maybe like Kanye West's Sunday service, which was like a whole separate thing, there definitely weren't any headliners, not even Ariana Grande's set that really matched the the scale of that. Maybe in part because they didn't have eight months to work on it, but that's the documentary side of things. And then just very quickly, the, the lemonade side of things I think is underrated in terms of its impact on title. Because I feel like, Title has relied so much on an exclusive strategy mm-hmm. to to retain users, mm-hmm. and from Beyonce's Lemonade to Kanye west The Life of Pablo, I feel like those are the two flagship exclusives really early on that they were promoting really heavily to try to gain subscribers. And I think like when when Lemonade first came out, people's perception was, oh, like Beyonce doesn't need to you know be on Spotify; she's already like one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, she could definitely afford to have this title exclusive, and like that's cool. Like it's it's being treated and like allocated to the separate space owned by Jay Z. Of course, that's part of it. But now that it's yeah, now that it's available on all these streaming services, I feel like Tidal... I, I don't know if they'll lose subscribers, but I feel like a lot of the value proposition for like why one should subscribe to title. Um, this is kind of just like the tip of the iceberg of maybe like other artists seeing that there maybe isn't as much benefit to it. And I know like title is a company generally has been struggling relative to its competitors, namely Spotify and Apple music to like grow at a substantial rate and to retain subscribers as well. So yeah. So I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to watch in terms of them, I guess, losing their control over that side of their business.
1: Definitely. Definitely interesting for title. I think, it's hard to call Beyonce underrated of course, because yeah. she's just so extremely like she's like revered by the culture I think it was just honestly almost underrated in terms of just like the the team behind the deal from AEG to Parkwood mm. to Columbia was just it was masterful in mm-hmm. how they did that right I mean you get a 60 million dollar deal from Netflix that like AEG and Parkwood split you launched that you launch that kind of documentary on the Anniversary of the performance. So you kind of like take the Coachella conversation that's like the massive focus of like all of cult, music culture and fashion culture right now. And Beyonce once again dominates it because the video, the Netflix documentary drops. You have a, I don't know, I'm sure it was like number one thing on your homepage, but it was definitely the number one thing on my homepage. That's 150 million people logging into that homepage every single yeah. day almost. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing Beyonce. To do that and then to launch it on Spotify. Uh, the, the live album which sold I think 40,000 units in the first 24 hours and that was priced at twenty dollars instead of instead mm-hmm. of 999
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: amazing 40,000 units in one it, it came in number seven on the billboard 200 and two, with one 24 hours mm-hmm. of tracking wow.
0: yeah which
1: is huge and then to launch on that momentum and a few days later uh, bring lemonade to streaming platforms it's incredible and it just speaks to you know Columbia I think is now one of the hottest major labels in the game right now um, Ever since Ron Perry stepped up, you know, they've been like the kind of center of culture for the past like two, three months, whether it's Lil Nas X, Mm -hmm. massive phenomenon, BTS, huge, the Game of Thrones soundtrack, Mm. you know, and now now Beyonce launching, you know, three major pieces of content, all with massive investment and marketing behind it. It's incredible to watch. And they timed it perfectly. And, you know, the one thing that's the most interesting thing, the most mentioned artist uh, during Coachella was Beyonce and she didn't even play it. Right. <laughs> so I think that was just an, an amazing yeah. stat that I was reading this morning. And just like, it's, it's a testament to how well-timed it was. And then, you know, capitalizing on the Netflix real estate of the homepage to then launch two albums, you know, and I'm interested to see tomorrow. I'm, gonna, I'm sure we're going to wake up and see a ton of Lemonade's tracks back into the U.S. Top 50. Mm. I'm actually mm. wondering how high it'll chart on the Billboard 200 next week um because you know that's like the one album i have on itunes is lemonade because it was not ac- not accessible on spotify and apple spotify and apple music prior to this so um i'm interested to see like how uh, how big it streams the first week and it'll be an interesting kind of uh interesting case study for people who have held off their albums off spotify for long and I think it was interesting too because like Jay-Z and Beyoncé both alluded to the fact that they didn't need Spotify multiple times in different yeah. songs like <laughs> right. Jay-Z Jay-Z the line like I don't I don't have a billion streams but I have a billion dollars. Um kind of just, you know, they they were like they were flexing on Netflix a lot. I mean uh, Spotify a, a ton during this period and it's good to see them finally embrace it and she embraced it at the exact right time when you're coming yeah. in with, you know, a massive Netflix marketing contribution your live album you know being completely committed to it. so like you know two songs in new music friday off of the live album i'm not sure and like now if you go to the spotify homepage, lemonade's now the number one featured kind of uh mm, thing for mm-hmm. me as well so mm-hmm. just a huge week in like the world of beyonce without actually putting out any new content so i was i was gonna say
0: yeah it's like the most extreme form of catalog marketing just to bring it back to, exactly yeah the exactly. conversation and like I mean, obviously, like her set at Coachella itself was just like a survey of her entire career, and it goes all the way back to like to Destiny's Child, like bringing them back out again. But um, that's a really good point. There's, like no, no new songs at all, and she didn't need that. Yeah,
1: I'm interested to see how much like total consumption of Beyonce content rose week over week. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. know, like her exactly like going back and seeing how big her catalog spiked after like going and watching the song be being performed live. How many people went and like, you know, consumed the different versions of those things available? How many people, you know, felt that nostalgic kind of feeling, and then went back and consumed different parts of her catalog? Or, mm. you know, you know, I bet you like some of her old albums even like started saw a spike on iTunes sales again. So totally, yeah. a, you know, just like an amazing coordinated uh, rollout between like all the different partners involved, like AEG, yeah. Parkwood, yeah. Columbia, Netflix all rolling at the same time for like massive, massive impact.
0: Yeah, for sure. Just to close off, I don't know if there's anything that you want to share in terms of like things you're working on at Wavo, or like if people want to reach out to you, what are the best ways to do that?
1: The best way would probably be Twitter and I'm just at a underscore Bonavia and then uh, my email is just alex at me. but um we're always, we're always looking at uh, new clients in the advertising and marketing space and we're ramping up our data science kind of product. So we're always looking for smart, interested people to be beta testers of the product as well. So I'll definitely, uh, I'll, you know, I'll send you a link as well once it's uh, up and running and you can kind of play around with it as well. Share.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much again for taking the time. This was super fascinating. you so much for listening to episode six of a water and music podcast if you liked what you heard i'd greatly appreciate you giving me a positive review on apple podcasts and or a follow on spotify or whatever other listening platforms you prefer if you're interested in giving any kind of financial support to this podcast you can visit my patreon page at patreon.com slash sherry who and contribute as low as one dollar a month Thanks again to Alex for the awesome conversation and to Lict for letting me beta test their music licensing platform. If you're interested in learning more about them, you can visit their website at lict.co. That's L I C K D.co. Until next time.